Hello, welcome back to Do You Really Want to Know? Mental Health Conversations. In this episode, we continue talking with John Clark, who has lived experience with depression, anxiety and suicide ideation and now works as a mental health trainer and suicide prevention advocate with Rural Alive and Well Tasmania. Things continued to get worse. Um, I was doing pretty silly things like sleeping at work to try and get more work done, just becoming more and more ineffective. Um, one night, um, you know, this is how uh, our thinking can just get so skewed. One night I actually went out on a really cold, frosty night um, with just a pair of shorts on and wanted to just get hypothermia. Another time I left home um, and went into a black spot area to try and um, sort of disappear and think of ways to end my life. Um, but uh, eventually I caved in, went to the GP, had that conversation, um, felt terribly weak and ashamed, wanted the floor to open up and swallow me. But he was great. He was very professional. Those guys do this all the time. In fact, I found out that it's now the number one thing that people go to the GP for. It's now the number one um, issue that people are going for, and that's mental health. So they're getting plenty of practice. He was great. He diagnosed me very quickly with depression and anxiety. By this stage, I had both um, because I didn't treat the depression early enough. And he prescribed some antidepressants and sent me off to a psychologist. Um, I don't think I went to the psychologist immediately or took the antidepressants. Um, it was shame. That was the big issue that I struggled with. I felt like such a failure. I was just, I just in my mind, I was a waste of space. And um, I couldn't face taking medication. That would have been just the final nail in the coffin. But I did in the end after about five months, I think I sat on that script and just in desperation um, went and filled the script. Um, and that was just so embarrassing doing that. Um, you know, we tell people to get help and we say there's no shame in getting help. Um, but there is a lot of shame getting help. So I actually tell people, you might feel really ashamed doing this, but let me tell you, it's the most courageous thing you can do because courage is what you do in the face of fear and shame. Um, it's not the absence of fear and shame. So to actually face this and to be courageous enough to, to, to get well, um, no matter, you know, it means maybe outing yourself, maybe having those really horrible conversations, maybe feeling weak, but to, um, to take action even in the face of those feelings, that's, that's real that's real courage. So I kind of try and use those ideas of masculinity to overcome some of those problems that masculinity can cause. So I started treatment and that was incredible. It was just, the difference was night and day. Um, the medication worked incredibly well. Half a dose was all it needed, which is what I was started on. And you could just, I could just have a normal conversation with my wife again rather than just blowing, blowing up because I just explode. I, I just developed a hair trigger and I'm normally just a really cool, calm, collected guy, but I could not have a conversation with her without getting irritated. So just to be able to sit down and talk again and just be calm and listen to her was incredible. And then I tried one psychologist, which didn't work out for me, saw him about seven times. And I thought, I'm just not getting anything out of this. And I switched to another one. And again, it was just night and day, the difference. 
this second psychologist was amazing. And um, every single time I went to her, I'd leave feeling hopeful that things were going to get better. Um, I made a few lifestyle changes as well, fairly significant ones. I quit my job for a start. Um, going back to that job for me is like asking an alcoholic to go and um, become a bartender. Um, just wasn't going to happen. So I became a stay-at-home dad for a little while, um, which is fraught with danger. <laughs> it's like Groundhog Day. Can't control much there. I know. Um, and I just felt like I was turning into a madman. I was just um, repeating myself all day, every day, telling them the same things. Put your shoes away. Put your lunchbox away. Put your school bag away. Have you had a snack? Have you washed your hands? Um, have you done your homework? I mean, it was just every day seemed the same day. Um, so I thought, I can't, I can't be doing this. This is going to um, be bad for all of us. So I got a job. And this is another thing that I think is helpful for men in particular. I got a job picking tomatoes. Um, it got me out of the house. It got me really physical. Um, it got me fit. Uh, it was hard work. But I only had one decision to make all day. Is it red enough? <laughs> <laughs> so that was awesome for the brain, great for the body. Um, I didn't have to interact with people if I didn't want to. So pretty much I just listened to Hamish and Andy podcasts kind of back to back um, with my headphones on and uh, they adjusted my work hours so that it was manageable. I could get the kids off to school and then be there for them when they came home. Um, it, it sort of helps you feel like you're doing something as a bloke, um, contributing to the family in some way um, and you're not such a failure um, and such a you know weak man that you can't provide for your family so that was really good and I also um, got back to doing a bit of farming so I was fixing electric fences on a dairy farm which was fantastic because being outside being in nature um, was amazing and to go from an office job and I'm just an outdoors guy so um, they were really interesting experiences that helped me understand components of what I needed to do to stay well So I need to be physically active, physically moving, physically fit. I need to be outdoors. I need nature. Um, so, and I need contact with people and I need vocation. I need things that I can do to feel useful. And for people who can't work, um, that would be volunteering. Um, and I'm, I do volunteer. I volunteer as an SES um, search and rescue um, volley. So um, even if people can't work, um, they can still volunteer and, even if they can't work or volunteer, they can still have a vocation. Um, I uh, know of a gentleman who has PTSD after serving in the army and um, he's now in his 60s and he's doing a Bachelor of Fine Arts. He's doing his honours degree and he feels like studies for him will be um, something that's important to his recovery and his well-being. So I kind of uh, found myself on the path of recovery where I was learning about myself. I was learning what a healthy life looked like. I was learning about mental health. I was um, getting some psychoeducation, some 
sort of um, literacy around um, mental health. I was um, able to cut back on my drinking. My psychologist was great. She said, look, when we deal with these other issues, you're not going to need to drink. You weren't drinking a lot before that. When you get back to full health, you won't be drinking much again. And she was totally spot on. So that alleviated a lot of my concerns around that. Um, started looking at diet and started to get um, that under control. Um, started playing soccer. I noticed my kids were having a hell of a time playing soccer. And here I am on the sideline cheering for them and thinking, gee, they're having such a great time. And I found a soccer team uh, to play with. And so that's been part of my recovery. Um, hobbies has been great too. So like I said, I took up fly fishing, um, took up bushwalking again. Um, I have a few other hobbies as well. I joined the men's shed and took up woodworking. Being in the men's shed was brilliant. So good. Those, those old timers, they're just really chilled out people, <laughs> really relaxed. Um, and nothing ever happens in a hurry at the men's shed. And that was so good for me. Um, it was funny because when I went along, I went along to get some help with something that I was building and I, I was struggling with it a bit. And I thought, I just need access to tools. So I was going down there really just to use the tools and to get out of there as soon as I could. Well, after doing that for about six weeks, um, I thought to myself, I need a new project because this one's coming to an end and I need an excuse to keep coming. And that was when I realised the power of um, social connections and groups for me. So that has featured really prominently in my recovery as well. Groups where I do things with people. Um, so it's always activity-based groups. Um, I don't have a book club that I go along and just have a chin wag with a bunch of blokes. I do activities. So whether it's, like I said, SES or whether it's um, soccer or whether it's um, running, you know, I do, I do the park run, for example, but I hate running alone. And um, uh, if I, um, you know, swimming, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to swim alone. So I joined a swim team. Um, so I'm now in the um, local masters um, swimming team. Do you know masters starts at age 18 for swimming? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and um, I just set a uh, state record, a Tassie state record. So um, I'm really wrapped with that in my second um, comp. And uh, I took up bike riding, so road riding and mountain bike riding. So I went for a bunch ride on Sunday with, you know, 10 other people. And it's just, you get the, you get the activity, the exercise and the outdoor stuff um, and the fitness, but you also get the connections with people as well, which is so important. And I don't really need deep connections. So, you know, how are you going? Yeah, good. How are you? And how's your weekend? And just catching up with people. Um, yeah, it's about as deep as I kind of need it. So, and so it fulfills, certainly fulfills that need uh, for me as well. Try to get my sleep under control. Um, bit of a work in progress. Um, but there's, there's lots of really good tips around getting sleep under control. When I'm stressed, I um, have uh, difficulties with sleep. I've been back on antidepressants once or twice since and um, <clears throat> I've had suicidal thoughts since um, as recently as um, last year. But they're nothing that I would act on. They're just neural pathways, if you like, that are so strong that for them to break down, I don't know if they ever will. So I think I will always have that susceptibility to having those thoughts when I'm upset or um, feeling really low. Yeah. But um, I have a safety plan and I have more understanding now. I think I'm more self-aware. 
I've got um, things I can do and I've got people I can talk to. I know medication works. I know which one at what dose rate and I have it here. So I think um, that may be a thing for people who've had really strong suicidal thoughts for a long period of time to potentially um, have those thoughts periodically. But with um, a lot of wisdom and experience can, can manage them okay. And I would think too, John, if we can break down the stigma of this, of the fact that people do have suicidal ideation, yeah. and, you know, have talk about safety plans, talk about what a recovery toolbox looks like for people with mental yeah. health issues, we will be able to break down some of this and normalise it maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, that's what motivated me to tell my story. That's what motivated me to be trained as um, a Suicide Prevention Australia speaker and a Beyond Blue speaker because I'd never heard this story and it was just so beyond my realm of experience. I just had no connection with mental health problems or suicide. So when I was having suicidal thoughts, I think I'd spoke to one person about it and they were, you know, a good mate, a good mate still today, but just didn't have any training about how to talk to, the, to someone about that. And so he basically said, don't do anything silly. But of course, it wasn't silly. <clears throat> it was the smartest thing I could come up with. It was the solution to all of our um, pain. So it wasn't silly at all. Um, so just a little bit of equipping for people we can definitely help them have conversations. And it's when you have a conversation with someone who's um, having suicidal thoughts, it's a huge relief to them because you feel really isolated because you're the only one that has those thoughts. I'm the only one. And it's a secret that you carry and it's, it's, um, it's really powerful and it's taxing. So to carry that secret and to feel isolated and disconnected from everyone around you because of that, when you can talk about it freely to people and not be judged, it's profoundly beneficial to people. So that's part of the mental health first aid training that I run now and um, helping suicidal people kind of training. And, and so, John, does that lead us to talk exactly about what you do in a day-to-day? -day? What, what is your job in, with RAW? So I started with RAW five years ago um, and I was drawn to this role because um, RAW's uh, job is to do suicide prevention. So, yeah, so RAW is um, Tasmania's state-based suicide prevention organisation. And we are tasked with uh, rural suicide prevention, mental health and wellbeing. So we um, work face-to-face -face with people and one-on-one -on -one where people feel comfortable. So they don't have to come to us. They don't have to come to an office anywhere. If you feel most comfortable standing in your hay shed, having a conversation with us, we'll be there and we'll have a chat with you. And then we'll work together to come up with an action plan to help you find a way out of this 
and we'll walk with you out of it. Um, so that's our one-to-one -one, um, outreach program. Um, but as I um, did more and more of that work, uh, I kept getting requests from organisations to say, you know, could you help us? Could you give us a bit of education on this? Could you offer our staff some training or our managers some training? Community groups would come to us like Rotary and, um, and Lions and, and other groups, CWA, Country Women's and, and things like that and say, this is such an important uh, topic we want to get some understanding around this and we want to try and do something about the um, horrific suicide rates. You know, we lose, we lose twice as many people to suicide as we do to car crashes. Every Christmas and Easter, we, we hear about the road toll and every long weekend. But just imagine that we're losing double the number um, to a form of death that is probably the most preventable form of death. Um, being suicide. So people are genuinely concerned about it and they want information about it. They want to understand, they want to know what they can do. So um, I started um, offering training. I got trained as a mental health first aid trainer um, and developed um, uh, some talks. Uh, so the Beyond Blue and Suicide Prevention Australia talks as well. And um, I developed some of my own training as well. So managers and team leaders was another one that I developed because they tell me wherever I go, and I, I tend to work in industrial settings um, because I'm an engineer, so I really feel comfortable and at home in those settings. And managers and team leaders say to me, I know I've got guys on my team and girls that struggle with mental health problems. I just don't know what to do about it. I don't know what to say. I genuinely care about these guys um, and I want to help them, but I don't want to make it worse. So I don't say anything which they know isn't a solution either. And so I go in and give training to people on how to actually tackle that issue in the workplace as well. So now I'm almost um, kind of full-time training in public speaking. So I do a lot of uh, training, do a lot of public speaking. Um, I do a lot of toolbox talks, which are like 45 minute talks. And I kind of try and get a number of messages in that 45 minute talk, but I build it all around my story. Because I think stories are powerful and um, people connect to stories more so than information. So I could give them all the stats on suicide. I could um, give them um, all the evidence-based um, means to prevent suicide, what works, what doesn't work, what's effective. And, um, yeah, given them a bunch of information but not necessarily impacted them. And what I really want is to emotionally move people. Information is you can Google information. I mean, it's just, it's all there at our fingertips. We've got, we've got the world's information in our pockets these days. So I don't really want to just go along and give information. I actually want to motivate people. Yeah. I want to motivate people who, um, who are doing great in life to look out for their friends, family and workmates. And I want to motivate people who are struggling with this stuff to do something about it. Um, and so the, the, basically what I'm trying to achieve in a 45-minute talk about my own experience is I want to uh, normalise this experience to say this is a really common experience. It doesn't mean you're bad, mad, crazy. Um, this is just a point that people get to when they're completely overwhelmed, their coping is overwhelmed, they've reached the end of the road and they can no longer manage. This appears to be a solution. So normalise it, I destigmatise it. This can happen to anyone. At any stage of life, male, female, rich, poor, 
Um, you know, famous, infamous, doesn't matter. It, this could happen to anyone. If it happened to me, it can happen to anyone. So I, um, I destigmatize it and I give people a little bit of information around it. Um, and then I try and um, promote help seeking. That's the, uh, the health sector term for stimulating people to sort it out. So in my talks with men, I don't say um, get help. I say sort it out mm -hmm. um, and take action. Mm -hmm. Take some steps to resolve this. There are things that you can do. You can sort it out. It isn't the only solution. There are other solutions. So I tend to try and work within the masculine framework rather than stepping outside of it by telling people to get help because that's stepping outside the, the masculine code. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I help men understand that um, they outsource a lot of stuff in their lives. So I ask blokes to lift their hand if they still service their cars. Most blokes don't because they don't have a computer to check the, um, any of the codes. So the only guys that do service their cars are sort of collectors and that sort of thing that have older vehicles that don't have, you know, car computers. And I ask them um, who they get to wire their house if the wiring needs done or they, who they get to build an extension or who they get to help them with their tax. Yeah, they just go down there with their receipts and dump it on the accountant's desk, don't they? So I explain to them that you're getting stuff sorted all the time um, by outsourcing stuff. So when it comes to your health and particularly your mental health, um, why is it that you think you should better handle it yourself when you don't handle your own taxes, <laughs> you don't handle your own car maintenance, you don't handle your own um, building extensions, you get other people to do it because who's got time for that stuff anyway? So why don't we outsource our mental health and our health in general to someone that's trained to do it and um, is better at us than doing it? and um, we'll get better outcomes from it. It's, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. And then I name up the shame issue, and I deal with that as well. Talk about shame. <clears throat> and then I encourage people who are doing well to look out for the people who aren't doing so well and encourage them to have a conversation with them. So I try and pack a lot in, and, but I hang those ideas on the story itself because I think it's a better way to communicate with people than just give them the ideas. In the next episode, we will conclude our conversation with John. And again, if this episode has raised any concerns for you, please contact Lifeline 131114, Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800 Beyond Blue 1300 22 4636 or Sane Australia 1800 18 72.